I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very, very special podcast to mark the passing of yet another year for which I am joined by three colleagues of such lethal cunning. We have our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Who is sharing a microphone, the ignominy, with our editor-in-chief, the wondrous Terry White. We are. I mean, I don't want to make a thing out of it being the two women on this podcast who are being forced to share one how, how do they know this would come up? How do they know? <laughs> we are like Pepsi and Shirley of the Empire pod. It's so good. No one drinks Pepsi. And James Dyer is also here, which is nice, I guess. Hi. How are you? I'm, I'm good on my, my own mic, which I have all to myself here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can I just say that this was not planned in this way? We thought we had a four-microphone studio... Turned out we only had a three-microphone studio, and the order in which the microphones had been assigned are the order in which you entered the room. So <laughs> it was basically it's like musical chairs, but with microphones. You are the editor. You could pull rank. Mm-hmm. Well, James, in his uh, typical gentlemanly <laughs> yes, manner, hang on, burst hang into on, the room first, dived into the chair to get that microphone. In your, so, hang on. On the one hand, you're vowing sexism, but on the other hand, you're promoting old-school chauvinism. So how does this work? Because I use whichever bit suit me at the time <laughs> for my argument. I thought we knew this about one another. Amazing. I actually think James should share a mic because he's the one most likely to trample other people's jokes. Yes. Um, and it would be it would be helpful, but you know, here we are. That is 100% slanderous true. truth. Yes. I mean, we already established before the uh, podcast began that we were trying not to talk over each other. It's something that James has already invalidated. <laughs> Mainly because he's not looking at anybody. He's just on his phone like the selfish fucking Nimrod he is. <laughs> I'm, I'm attempting to do some very, very last minute research and pretend I've prepared for this podcast. I mean, you've only had 365 days, in fairness. That's what I'm saying. Did this take you by surprise as a review of the year podcast? It did. It did, yeah. And I've been saying for the last two months, hey guys, don't forget we have to do that review of the year podcast and then when I booked it I sent you an, an invite yeah. and then multiple texts over the weekend going don't uh-huh. forget we're doing the review of the year podcast all those just passed you by? If it makes you feel any better I did loads of prep for the pilot review of the year podcast Always with the pilot <laughs> I think that's his attempt to plug pilot because you won't Chris <laughs> Not that there's any rivalry between our two magazines I'm forever on message I'm cutting that bit out So <laughs> it's all good all good. No, listen, I applaud I applaud your attempts to get a podcast off the ground for your your little podcast. What's it called? What's it called well, again? The pilot the pilot podcast? I believe, Chris, that you yourself subscribed to it only this morning. I did subscribe to it only this morning. And because I'm, you had to, because I needed your help uploading it. Yes, true. I'm in the middle of uh, giving it a review on uh, iTunes. If you oh, could good. follow the rules, which are Terry White <laughs> makes life worth living, Boyd uh-huh. is kind of okay. Aggressively James, average. And James Dyer is a uh, Marvel, um, no, Disney villain. Yeah, or a posh yeah. twat. You wish, you wish to be a Marvel yeah. villain, you are a Disney villain. <laughs> or, or a posh twat, that seems to be my reviews. They, they vacillate between one or the other. Uh-huh. All right, okay. Well, now, welcome everybody. Now let's get this podcast on the, on the go. This is, of course, to celebrate and discuss the cinematic uh, goings-on of the year 2018. But before we get into it, let's evaluate the year that was. Terry, what did you think of this year? How would you rate it out of 10, cinematically speaking, of course? I think it ended up better than I thought it may. So, uh, which doesn't sound very helpful as the editor-in-chief of Empire Magazine, but I think we knew we had a couple of huge temple moments this year. Um, <laughs> and 
one, yeah. me, one in particular <laughs> of, uh, with the F- Infinity War, we knew we had a Star Wars outing. Nobody was quite sure how that was going to go. I think it's been a bit of a roller coaster this year, I have to say. And I think we've seen that in the box office. A smaller number of films have taken the biggest numbers at the box office mm-hmm. this year, which I think is pretty much down to the huge success of things like Infinity War, things underperforming like Han Solo. Um, I mean, you know, still taking large sums of money, but probably not crossing lines they would have done previously Um, and I feel like in some respects this year has been a palate cleanser for 2019 we've got some huge things lined up in 2019 I'm really excited about next year but I think what has cut through this year and has been really interesting is some incredibly beautiful foreign films the smaller independent films and actually a couple of mid-market films it's been said that you know those mid-market films don't get made anymore that they've been squeezed out but things like Bad Times at the El Royale which we put on the cover um there aren't temple aren't franchise don't have huge budgets that have actually connected as well yeah. and it's exciting to see those films being made again from it's, my perspective i agree entirely we've gone it's been a year where you've got massive massive films like avengers infinity war obviously but you've got also mid-sized films as well smaller films like black panther and then smaller <laughs> films like ant-man and the wasp mm. and then on the other end of the spectrum we have these small independent animated movies like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. It's been a really diverse year, Helen. It has. Do you know what I think about this year? One of my big takeaways is how good the big films have been. I think we've had years um, in the very recent past, actually, where there have been great, great films during the year, but they've mostly been at the smaller or the medium end of the spectrum. And and if you you only need a few big tentpoles to to disappoint, to give you a really mm-hmm. kind of eh, yeah, all right, to give you a really kind of deflated feeling to this summer. Tentpole. I'm sorry. Um, and and I think this year, you know, stuff like obviously Infinity War, but also you know Spider Verse most recently, uh, big films like. Like Coco, big films like, oh, I don't know, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Black Panther. But like genuinely, some of the, a lot of these films uh, ended up in my top ten. The year Mission Impossible Fallout. I mean, we, we expect a certain base level from a Mission Impossible movie, that base level being MI2. But, you know, this one went so far beyond that. It was, it was terrific. Jim, what you, what's your take on the year? I have enjoyed it a lot. I found it very frustrating that a lot of the films which I have liked muchly have come too late to have included in my official top ten of the year list, uh, which I'm just going through it now, and I, I'm having to wreck on the shit out of it uh, just to include things like uh, Bird Box and to include things like uh, Into the Spider-Verse, possibly Bumblebee, but to be honest, that doesn't really make my top ten if it is close. I mean, that, um, that would indicate that you've seen ten films this year if you put Bumblebee on your list. Admittedly, admittedly, this is not so much the top 10 films of the year, it's the top 10 films of the year I have seen, which are two very, very different things. And you need to bear that in mind. So Professionalism. Roma, Roma I'm sure, is fabulous, but I haven't seen it. And let's be honest, I'm probably not going to. So, Welcome know. to the <laughs> premier film podcast arm of the world's biggest movie magazine. What can I tell you? There's just so much to watch. I have to triage. But I think we should um, also kind of take note, it's been a really interesting year in terms of distribution, right? So we've seen films put out both via streaming platforms, so via Netflix, and also at the cinema. So if you think about Roma, really interesting because it had a very limited cinema release, but was mainly viewed by Netflix. Same for Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which was Netflix. Um, We've got The Irishman coming up next year, which is obviously Scorsese. No confirmation on whether that will definitely have a theatrical run 
mm-hmm. attached, you've mm-hmm. got to expect it to, but also films moving from studio. So if you think about Annihilation and Mowgli, both of which moved, mm. were shifted for reasons which I'm sure we could speculate <laughs> on, onto those streaming platforms. And I think next year we're going to see this kind of multi-layered distribution um, tactic ramp up. And I think it raises big questions for us about how people are seeing it and mm-hmm. how they want to see it. Because I don't know about you guys, not looking at James because he hasn't seen it, but <laughs> Roma on the big screen mm. is a phenomenal piece of work. You cannot yeah. watch it on your laptop. Alfonso Cuaron did not make that film to be seen on people's phones, no matter what. No. Ted Sarandos, who is one of the big cheeses over there at Netflix, and yeah. he's a great guy in terms of, you know, he is the guy who is going out and saying to Hollywood's premier talent, come with us and we will respect your vision but we'll make it on a five-inch screen. But I I do think it makes... um, It does make filmmakers think about the way it's going to be seen and and, and therefore how they want to make it. So I think starting with Dunkirk last year, but also I think we're seeing more and more of filmmakers making their films incredibly cinematic. So really turning up the dial on what makes it a must-to-see in the Mm. cinema, which I think is going to make for even more incredibly exciting, innovative, boundary-breaking filmmaking in the the kind of near future. What I found quite interesting interesting though is that filmmakers are increasingly having to adjust to the reality that some people, more people now than ever before, will be encountering their work for the first time in their living rooms and not in cinemas. So much so that Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise did their kind of public service announcement saying, for the love of God, please turn off motion smoothing in your televisions because it's ruining our films. I thought that was a very interesting... It was interesting for two reasons. One, because it's pretty much the first thing we've seen from the Seven Top Gun Maverick, and it was unexpected. Um, Maverick versus motion smoothing. But also, it is a very valid point that a lot of the TVs have this turned on by default, and it does ruin films, which are all shot in 24 frames a second, and have that cinematic jerkiness. It takes that away and makes it look like a BBC production of, you know, The Wind in the Willows, which was the problem that... Jackson obviously had with The Hobbit when it got first released. And don't forget, of course, this was the year of the Cloverfield Paradox. If we go back all the way to, when was that, January, mm. early Feb? It was around the time of the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. so it would have been Feb. And uh, when they just dropped out without warning. Yeah. Um, which I thought was interesting. And then we saw the film and we realised why they <laughs> dropped it without warning. But, uh, you know, hey yeah, There lies the paradox. Well, yeah, I, I think that this is the thing. I think cinema is the best way to see films, if you can, if you have that option. Because there, there is something about that collective experience that I think can really raise a film and, and give it a resonance that nothing else can. Even your entire family packed into one living room um, but at the same time you know yeah it's not always possible not everybody has the money to go multiple times a month multiple times a week not everyone has a good cinema experience available to them you know there there are let's be honest I mean rubbish cinemas out there where you are going to be surrounded by talking people people on their phones whatever else I know it's a nightmare scenario but it happens people um, so I, I don't want to be snobbish about it I think if great films are getting made that is a good thing, and I hope that people get the chance to see them, you know, in the cinema as well. But I, I, I hope that the art speaks for itself, even if you're watching it. I mean, ideally not on your phone. I really have to stress that. But if that's mm. what it takes, yeah, then, especially then that's if what you're you have. Already in the cinema, don't watch a film on your phone. <laughs> uh, somebody did do that yes. when I went to see Mandy, a late night screening of Mandy, and the man um, next to me was on his phone watching something different on his phone while sight no. yeah. But I have to say, I think Helen's completely right on accessibility. But I do have a bit of a beam up on it because I think we are at a point in time where 
the world is on fire, right? It's like a burning shit can of shit. It's made of shit, the shit in it, the shit all around it. Um, I and... just took a taste out of some lovely Brexit pie earlier on. <laughs> Cigarette butts. But, and I think in those times, I think immersive, pure experiences are more important than ever to us as human beings. I think it keeps your humanity, I think it keeps your soul rich, and I think sitting in a cinema for two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, whatever it is, with the lights off, phone turned off, hopefully, um, <laughs> enjoying a collective experience with strangers is amongst one of the most beautiful things we still have. And I think the experience in and of itself is worth it. And then I do think um, if a filmmaker has made it, intended it for the big screen, that's how it should be viewed. However, I do fear that cinema is becoming less accessible and actually that that horrifies me because cinema should be for all there should be democracy around cinema well, it's, it's, it's cost prohibitive isn't it more That's than anything right. else yeah. it's just ruinously expensive to go to the cinema these days well I mean there are you know I don't complex wanna... word for the peck and plex mm-hmm. yeah, yes I mean, there are ways of there are, ways there, are ways there are there are cinemas out there and cinema chains out there yeah. that are making it affordable and yeah. more power to them I have a list of affordable yeah. cinemas that I gathered on Twitter after Basically, I posted about the Genesis near me in East London, which does £5 tickets and a drink. Um, for the, That's the film and a drink for a fiver. And my email and Twitter was flooded by people sharing their own stories. I'm going to try and get that on Empire Online soon as a resource. Mm-hmm. But I think people are trying much harder. But you see, you know, the headlines about the new one in Leicester Square, which was 40 quid for a good seat in, mm-hmm. in a prime time. Yeah. That kind of thing is really difficult to square, I think. What's been your favourite cinematic experience of the year? Because you talk about this really expensive, these luxe seats at Odeon and whatnot. I... I... Did Lux seat for the first time this year. I, mm. I saw the Equalizer 2 in a Lux seat. That's amazing. I mean, it's already an all-time cinematic great, <laughs> but it was somehow enhanced by the experience of just being able to roll back, just lean, recline in your seat and watch it and have an entire bag of crispy M&Ms whilst watching Denzel kill all the bad Wow, you, li- you live that dream, Chris. It was fucking amazing. Sorry to equalise explain to you, but you were actually at the refurbished view when you saw that, not the Lux. Oh, this is true. Other cinema chains are available, but you and I saw Robin Hood at the uh, at the uh, Lux, we didn't did, we? did, yes. Yeah. We went to Swiss Cottage. We paid like you know civilians. Civi- uh, yeah, and it was great. It was. Uh, it was I mean, well, it wasn't it great because we had to watch Robin Hood. But other than that, the seats were brilliant. I may have fallen asleep for ten minutes. You genuinely did twice. <laughs> Um, it's understandable. So the question was um, favourite experience of the year in, um, in, in a cinema. Yeah, and and honestly, it was well probably both answers even without the cinema. Um, the equaliser too. It was Avengers: Infinity War. Dread it. Seeing oh, that. Run from it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, Helen. Seeing that just... in a packed house. Yeah. Um, full of fans. Let's be honest. Because even at this point, most of us in, in there were fans. was astonishing. It was transcendent. It was. It was actually <laughs> magic. And I mean, I, I'll be honest, I went back uh, for the midnight opening screening, which even though uh, some people fell asleep around me, was still amazing. And just like listening to people's reactions to the end of that film was pretty cool. <laughs> I'm with Helen on this. Like Watching Infinity War was just singular yeah. this year it was an extraordinary experience my two top films of the year and my two favourite experiences are the same it is this and A Quiet Place but for very different reasons A Quiet Place was weirdly one of the most interesting but also one of the most uncomfortable cinematic experiences I've had in that you're so aware of the people around you when watching that film mm. you're so aware of the cinema and the rustling and the noises and people shifting in their seats that actually in a cinema it can at times almost pull you out of the film because you're so aware of your environment but it was a very a very singular cinematic experience nonetheless 
Yeah, that's fair. Uh, Hereditary also hit me really hard. I saw it in, in the head. Yeah, like a tree. Um, I saw it in the middle of the day and honestly couldn't really fathom there being sunshine when I came out. <laughs> yeah. It didn't make any sense. I had that when I saw the mist and I came out of that and I just I felt the urge to walk into traffic. I just didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, my favourite, um, well, the film that I most enjoyed seeing in the cinema was A Quiet Place for the reasons James said. It was a, a really empty screening. There was one other person, but I was very conscious of my own breathing, how my arse sounded sitting on the seat. It was, uh, <laughs> what was your arse doing? You know, you move a bit and it makes a noise. Um, and then just for the experience, I, I one of my favourite cinemas in the world is The New Beverly in LA, which is Quentin Tarantino's cinema. Um, they only show his films and films that he's influenced by. They showed his print of Death Proof. Um, and that was just the crowd were amazing. They were all kind of like-minded people. The coffee outside was like $2, tasted bad, burning hot, but it kept me up until like <laughs> 2 in the morning. Um, and that was just like an incredible... If anybody's ever in LA, go to the New Beverly. That yeah, has reminded right. me, I went I went on an LA cinema pilgrimage a bit as well. So I saw Ready Player One at the Cinera, uh, Cinerama Dome, mm-hmm. which was I'm sorry awesome. sorry to hear that. Well, I know it was Ready Player One, but also it was in the Cinerama Dome, which was great. Okay. Um, and then I went to the Egyptian and oh. saw Sons of the Desert, the Laurel and Hardy movie, which was just a perfect combination of place and subject. And it was great and really set me up for next year's Stan and Ollie, which was lovely. Fantastic. Well done, everybody. Uh, I didn't have that Infinity War experience uh, because I was at home. Um, doing an interview. Yes, you were. Oh you missed goodness. it. I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah, I was. Uh, I've just looked up to see who I was doing, uh, and this was a double whammy. The double whammy <laughs> doing her uh, ten pole. Uh, the double whammy was that uh, it was also the night that Liverpool were playing Roma in the Champions League semi-final. That's right. Yeah. So I had that choice, didn't I? I had yeah. the choice. What do I do? What yeah. do I do? This. This was tough. This was tough. Mm. And so in the end, I chose football. I chose football because I figured oh, I'm going to see Infinity War. I'll see it tomorrow, or I'll see it the, which I did, or I'll see it the day you know next week or whatever. But this is a moment of history, and I need to see my my, my boys play in the Champions League semi final. Yeah. And then someone scheduled an interview directly opposite the football match, so I missed the entire first half. And I came in, and we were three 0 up. Um, Be honest, in the living room. Were yeah. you <clears throat> watching the football unprofessionally while doing the interview? No. Excellent self control. Completely different room and didn't check Twitter or anything. I had no idea what the score was until they walked in, and it, the interview was with Paul Rudd and Evangeline Lilly. So there you go, uh, in which uh, Infinity War came up, and they couldn't discuss it, and I went, neither can I, because I have not seen it. <laughs> there you go. That was, my, that was my cinematic experience of the year. Also, I went to an outdoor screening of The Meg beside a Lido in South London. Yes. And it was at the end of that three-month period of baking hot weather... And the heavens opened, yeah. completely opened. So it was really, if you think about it, a sort of 4D experience <laughs> of the leg because we were all extremely soaking wet. And an added bonus, you had half the cast of Love Island there. Yes, they were trying... So basically, there were there were little um, dinghies in the Lido for them to sit in and watch the, the film. But unfortunately, those just started to fill up with water because it was raining extremely heavily. So, I, I mean, I was on one of the, the what do you call it, um, beanbags right behind those dinghies. And... and because I have been to outdoor screenings in the UK before, I had brought a lot of le- of like plastic-backed rugs. So we were relatively dry. They were literally sitting fully dressed in a bath. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not dissimilar to Love Island, really, except guess, for the yeah. dressed part. That's true. I've heard. I, I yeah, like, you haven't discussed that on Pilot TV podcast, have you? <laughs> oh, it's our bread and butter. Cinematic TV. Well, Terry did bring up The Apprentice last week, much to my chagrin. Oh, really? I did, yes. 
Do you watch The Apprentice, Terry? I do, yes. And uh, what do you think of this year's crop? I haven't um, seen, I don't spoil it, I haven't seen the, was, the final it yet. It was final last night. All I'm going to say is that the correct person won. That's interesting, given that they're all fucking idiots. I mean, they are all idiots. I always think that it's the most basic task of, like, being an adult who works somewhere and has some kind of job, and they, like, fuck it up every single time. <laughs> no matter how, like, basic a task it is, I kind of I have to respect that. Do yeah. you remember when I ruined the first series of The Apprentice for everyone? Do you remember when I ruined insert something here? That <laughs> I'd, I'd met the person who won it and she'd mentioned that she won it. And obviously not watching this stuff, I didn't pay any attention. I went in and mentioned, oh, I said I met the person who won The Apprentice last night and said the person's name. And everyone was like, nobody knows that's happened. You've just ruined the show. I was like, oh. That's amazing. You're welcome. Yeah. Uh, all right. So that's your cinematic experience of the year. What's the best film you watched on an airplane? I don't watch films Ooh. on airplanes. Why not? Because I always bring my entertainment with me. I never, ever, and ever use the influence. Is that entertainment? Does it include films? Sometimes. It's normally... So you do watch films? Oh, yeah, so like when I went out to do Shane Black for The Predator, the I watched rests. every single one of his films on Excuse the way out on the plane. The prosecution? Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Prosecuting him. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you'd never defend me. Oh, no, that'd be terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he did it. <laughs> Convict him. <laughs> Thanks, I watched I watched Eagle vs Shark on a plane this year, so obviously a rewatch, but still. I, I have never finished that film. I started it on a plane once and never ever, never got to the end because you know we landed. Cool story, bro. Um, <laughs> Did you think it was the Meg? Is that what you were yeah, really disappointed? Like, there are neither eagles nor sharks in this. It's actually very misleading. Mm. I also watched Roman J. Israel. Remember yeah. uh, Denzel got a nomination yes. for that, didn't he? Yes, he did. He's very good, but it's a nothing movie. I so. thought it was fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Well. I, I, I also watched it on a plane recently, and I was like, why was this movie overlooked? It's really good. So I watched um, I Feel Pretty. So what I tend to watch <laughs> on planes is... Things that I either need to see for work but I haven't for some reason or that I would never, ever watch upon pain of death. And I yeah. choose planes to watch it. So I don't ever watch anything I truly want to watch. Um, I'd already seen I Feel Pretty and hated it with a violent, violent passion. Um, so I decided to sit through it again. It's like perfect plane fodder in that you can tune out have a few glasses of wine and try and see kind of a glimmer of a redeeming feature in there. Uh-huh. Didn't work. <laughs> Dreadful. Was it the old joke? I saw I feel pretty on a plane and I tried to walk out. Was it, was hey, it that one? Yeah. But that's the thing about our jobs, right, is we've normally seen everything. So the thing before <clears throat> I had this job and I used to watch a lot of films, but nowhere near the volume I watch now, there'd be something I hadn't seen, whereas now we've pretty much seen everything. Yeah, we've usually seen all the good stuff. So we watch yeah. the mid-level disappointing looking comedies personally yes. I watch a lot of those father figures I saw father figures on a, tra- on a plane that oh, kind of no. thing well it was there and I hadn't seen it so well a plane is where I saw Game Night right well that's better one though of the films of the year mm. and uh, I thought it was absolutely terrific uh, it's also where I saw another one of my films of the year Hearts Beat Loud Oh, yeah. uh, which which got a blink and you'll miss it release at, uh, over here. So I, I blinked and I missed it. So thankfully I caught up with it in the plane. It is fantastic uh, with one of the best soundtracks of the year as well. But we're getting on to that. We'll be getting on to that at sure. some point. Yeah, should we do that? All right, time for the next question. And uh, this may be a little bit um, jerky, self-jerky, jerky-offy. But what was your personal highlight of the year? And I don't mean the film that you, you saw, but something that you did. Someone that you spoke to, something that, that happened in your professional career. Can I start yes. by saying, and I think this is one of Empire's highlights of the year, is Steven Spielberg attending the Empire Awards 
in Camden, of all places, um, we obviously had a big Spielberg takeover issue and we've invited him to the Empire Awards every single year since it started and he's never been able to make it. He said, fuck you guys, I ain't coming to your fucking dog and pony show. Something along those lines. Yeah. And we heard that he was coming into town, but he wasn't due to be in time to tie in with the awards. Um, so shifting the diary of Steven Spielberg takes quite a lot of work from everybody involved. It's a but big diary. It is a big Huge. diary. Um, and the I remember the night that I got the text message to say he was confirmed to attend. It was when there was the snowstorms in London um, and I was hiding out in a local pub for safekeeping and um, my phone beeped and it was a text just saying Stephen is in um, from one of the publicists I was talking to. I burst into tears in the pub, ordered myself another drink and I think I speak for everybody at Empire when the moment when he walked into the room in Camden, can I just make that point again? In Camden... <laughs> I mean, I don't come to Camden if I could avoid it. Into so. the Roundhouse in Camden and he walked to the stage to receive his Legend of Our Lifetime Award, gave the most beautiful speech about um, cinema, why it's so important and also why Empire mattered so much. Oh, God, it's making me, like, choked up just yeah, thinking about it. Yeah, it was a lovely it. speech. And you and I were stood on stage, Chris, because yep. we'd been hosting and yep. it was proper goosebumps because it reminded me of why everybody loves Empire so much, why it's so important and shows the proper connection we have with people like Steven Spielberg. And just if you'd have told me when I was nine years old watching E.T. that Spielberg would would one day A, say my name and B, be stood like three foot in front of me, I'd have not believed it. So, would you think you probably would have had to bring you up to speed with a lot of different concepts as well? <laughs> go, you know, oh, yeah. little girl, there's this magazine. There's uh, a thing called a magazine. Empire. There's a thing called a magazine. It's nothing to do with coal. <laughs> no, it's a magazine. Um, and uh, and there's this, you know, there's this place in Camden. Camden's in London. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so you'll get a train, and trains are these long things that yep. go on on the rails. You know, all these yep. things you have to be explained to you. But yeah, I can I can see that. It was a it was a huge moment, I think, and the I can still when I think back to it now, I still get the same feeling I got then, and it was a wonderful, wonderful moment for everybody involved. But that was also the personal highlight, but also the personal low light of my year because that's the when he told me I looked like a young Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> At least he said young. Yeah. <laughs> he could have just said you look like Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> As he is now. Uh, that was pretty amazing. What was your what was your highlight of the year? What was your personal highlight, Helen? I did meet Lynn Manuel Miranda twice, which was a pleasure both times. Um I I turned around the the Avengers review in about thirty five minutes, yes, which I was it. quite yes. quite proud of. It and I, it's not well, it's not my worst. Let's be honest. Um, and uh, apart from that, I don't. What else have I done? You've done stuff. You've been around. Probably. You've, you've been oh, there was a book. Things. I wrote a book, so that was, I guess, good. Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, it's bad. Well, I don't know. It's okay. I just keep seeing commas in the wrong place every time I look at it. So please, just don't commas make me look at it. Commas in the comma wrong place. Comma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there, there are some commas that shouldn't be there that's all I'm just I can't see past it I'm, I'm sure other people seem to like it so that, that's wonderful and I'm proud that they do so but. these commas just kind of find a way into the sentences almost surreptitiously you can't really see them I believe Boy George once wrote about this in his hit song Comma Chameleon yes okay. thanks Chris oh just god turning everyone's microphone down so I can just bask in the glory <laughs> that was so good thank you for bringing Get that into my life stage. you suck <laughs> yeah that's true um, everyone's a critic Especially hey. Jimbo, what was your personal highlight of the year? Did you see a film? What was it like? 
Did, did someone have to talk you through what the experience was? Go to the cinema this year. I don't recall. What's the best thing that happened to me this year? I got hugged by Chewbacca. That was a pretty big highlight for me. Uh, I enjoyed that a lot. I know that you're looking at me with evils here because me and Nick went and did it without you and you weren't able to get hugged by Chewie and you love Chewie. So this is possibly the worst thing that happened to you and the best thing that happened to me all in the same time and that makes it even better for me. Uh, personal highlight for me was just every time I do one of these podcasts I'm reminded of how much I enjoy being with you people. That was very oh, That was a lie. <sighs> Okay, right, let's try and get this back on the rails. Uh, yeah, we should probably talk about films at some point. Nah, <laughs> nonsense. Let's try, I'm going to mix up the categories a little bit. Cameo of the year. I have one. Okay. Uh, so my cameo of the year was Brad Pitt in Deadpool 2, which was really for the sheer shock and awe value of it. So obviously the running gag in Deadpool 2 is about the Vanisher, who, of course, you don't see, um, and is mute, and he's joined X-Force as they're going to attack the convoy. (laughs) And it's just a shock when he suddenly flies into flame, because obviously um, they uh, are in an accident, it goes into a kind of, all goes horribly wrong, they're all brutally killed, um, spoiler, obviously, including him, and he flies into an electrical power fence, at which point he's briefly visible, and then hurtling towards the screen is Brad Pitt. And it was an incredibly well-kept secret. I definitely didn't know it was coming. So Mm. when we went to the screening, the staff screening, and suddenly Brad Pitt's face was on the screen, it was a wonderful, wonderful moment. I think Deadpool 2 had kind of mixed reactions from us, but that moment alone I just thought was um, impeccably done. A brilliant cameo. Mm. Uh, I don't know how small your part has to be uh, to be a cameo. Temple. Um, yep. So there, there's a couple of potential ones that might or might not qualify here. But I would like to give a shout out to, um, if, if we're allowed slightly big parts, as in people who have a line or two, Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins Returns, because I didn't realise until I saw it that what I really genuinely needed this year was to see Dick Van Dyke tap dancing on top of a desk. And, and honestly, it gave me so much joy, more than really the rest of the film. I, I just thought that was completely, completely delightful. Um, and I enjoyed the rest of the film, I did, but but that was by far the, the standout for me. Um, I would also like to shout out to Van Dyke's original Mary Poppins co-star, because she was my other favourite cameo of the year. Because, of course, Julie Andrews voices the gigantic Kraken-esque Carathon uh, in Aquaman. Yes. And that makes no freaking sense at all. And so full, full marks. That's just wonderful. I didn't even realise that. Yeah. Is that true? That is true. That's amazing. Yes. James is going to have a real blast when we record our Aquaman spoiler special (laughs) immediately after this. Yeah, so full marks there. For yeah. Basically, if it wasn't a Mary Poppins person, I'm not sure I want to know. There must have been some great cameos in Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Oh! Stanley. Nicholas Cage. Oh, Stanley. Mm. Oh, he had the best cameos. You're right. All of his this year, I've got Actually, to take. yes. I, even I enjoyed his this year, which is, you wow. know, for me, <gasps> unusual. Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah, I know. It's weird, isn't it? It's making me uncomfortable. Yes, Nicolas Cage in Teen, Teen Titans. Titans. Good yeah, movies. finally playing Superman. Yeah, finally getting to scratch that itch. Or is it it's that scratch? I can never quite remember. Scratch that itch. He scratches that itch. Uh, so he was very, very good in that. I would also say, yeah, I mean, it's it's... The year that we lost Stan Lee, but we had some cracking cameos this year. So his cameo in Black Panther was he was a gambler mm. uh, talking to Martin Freeman. He is also Infinity War as a bus driver going, what's wrong? You haven't seen a spaceship before. But the uh, the ones that really got me were the hilarious cameo in Teen Titans where oh, yeah. it's, 
It takes the piss out of the general notion of Stan Lee cameos. And then his really moving cameo in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, that was a lovely one. And, and actually, you know, obviously it wasn't planned that way, but it ended up being a, a lovely goodbye. Indeed. It certainly did. He's also glimpsed briefly in Deadpool 2, which mm-hmm. features my other favourite cameo of the year, which is the Matt Damon cameo. Which you unearthed, <laughs> didn't you? Did I unearth it? Yeah, because like none of us... Out. Yeah, you figured it out from the, the Dickie Greenleaf thing, which yeah. none of us had picked up on. Yeah, there's a scene where Cable comes into the present day and there are two redneck, two rednecks on a truck having a conversation, and one of them is Alan Tudyk, and Alan Tudyk is this perfect misdirection because Alan Tudyk is there to catch your eye, and you go, is that Alan Tudyk? And you're so focused on him that you don't notice the guy next to him who's doing the monologue. And the guy next to him is credited as Dickie Greenleaf. Uh-huh. And Dickie Greenleaf is the name of Jude Law's character from The Talented Mr. Ripley. I can't entirely reveal how I put that together, <laughs> but let me just say that I had reason to believe that that was actually Matt Damon. Turns out it was Matt Damon. And that was a pretty good cameo, I thought. Matt Damon also had a cameo in Unsane. He did. This year. Mm. He did, he didn't he? He was a security mm. expert, wasn't he, advising her? Yeah. How to escape her stalker? Yeah. yeah. Uh, any other cameos? Anything in like Ralph breaks uh, the internet or anything else? Solo Star Wars. Story? Well, I was sort of going to say. I think the the one that sticks out most for me is the Darth Maul cameo at the end of Solo. Kind of caught me, shall we say, unawares. I certainly didn't see that coming at all. Uh, and from talking to Ron Howard, n- neither did he until, <laughs> until he dropped it in at the last minute at the behest of his children. But uh, nevertheless, it was uh, an interesting move. Mm. I don't know if it counts as a cameo, but I think it should because it's only about five minutes long, and that's Cher in Mamma Mia 2. Oh, yes. Um, Because uh, she turns up having been heavily foreshadowed, um, and we know about her that she's had an ill-advised romance at some point in the past with someone in South America. We also know that Andy Garcia plays a character with a Hispanic name, Mm. and it also has a shadowy past. I wonder if his first name could be Fernando. <laughs> I wonder if she'll end up singing Fernando, Adam. She does. Spoiler. It's amazing. It's by far the best thing in the, in the film, apart from maybe Colin Firth recreating the prior shot of Titanic <laughs> with Stellan Skarsgård. Oh, also, yep. uh, Chucky in Ready Player One. Yeah. <laughs> yes. right. It's such a brilliant moment. And heralder of the film's single F-bomb. Yes, what was it? It's fucking, fucking Chucky. Chucky. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an excellent use of their one swear word. <laughs> yeah. Um, just, um, the, um, you know, that whole film is a pop culture, yeah. Yeah. Easter egg hunt, you know, cameo laden. Oh. So it was hardly... It still managed to be massively surprising, though. It's still, you weren't expecting it. Coming out swinging with the knives. I loved it. And and the Iron Giant in there as well. Oh, yes. my God. And oh. Goro from Mortal Kombat and a thousand other things. Yeah, but I don't care about them. I care about the Iron Giant. You don't even care about the Battletoads? No. That's fair. Is there any love for the Red Skull cameo in Infinity War? Yes. Even though it's Hugo Weavingless? Yes. Well, we had Hugo Weaving this year elsewhere. It's Hugo fine. Unwoven. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I thought it was a, it was a pretty good um, impression of, of a Hugo Weaving. And it was interesting to see, you know, a sort of... Uh, slightly mis- mythological take or something on the on the Red Skull. I just quite like the mm-hmm. t- the direction they'd taken the character in. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, should we move on to song, track slash musical moment of the year? What was floating your boat soundtrack wise this year? Uh, Terry White. Terry White. Guess what I'm going. You've got for. songs. I would go for Greatest Showman <laughs> if I could get away with it two years on the trot, but I think I may be pushing my luck. A Star is Born now. No. That soundtrack is 
phenomenal. And after I saw the film, um, there are a couple of songs in particular. Shallow is obviously the one that's been nominated and is kind of on everybody's um, best of the year list. Here's my issue. Go on. There's no second verse. A song needs a second verse. They can repeat the same verse 84 times and I am happy as Larry. Well, you mean lyrically it needs a second verse? Yeah, like just the shape of it. It it goes, it goes verse, chorus, basically bridge. I just like, I'm I'm, I'm upset by that because I bought the soundtrack, honestly, looking forward to hearing the second verse. There's no second verse. Don't be lazy people, write a second verse. So hang on, are you saying it's only like one and a half minutes long? No, I'm saying that it's only got one verse. That they repeat? Yeah, but it's not... A, no, they don't repeat the verse. So they go first. So you, how long's the song then? I mean, it's about three minutes, but... I will tell you, the song <laughs> is three minutes and 37 seconds but, on the radio edit. Yeah, but that's a lot oh. of her going woo-woo. <laughs> I think that's technically exactly what she says. Yeah. But, yeah. but shallow, shallow's um, deficiencies aside, <laughs> the best song for me is actually Always Remember Us This Way, which is mm. again used as a big storytelling signpost um, the right first one, Shallow, is when she is when she um, kind of first performs on stage. This is when she kind of does her own material and becomes her own artist. And I think actually, you know, Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga, they both wrote and or performed and produced pretty much every song on here. Um, they're they're amazing songs by any any measure. They are remarkable pieces of music and they are so overall and so emotional and so ridiculous. And even the ones, there's so many songs on there which are meant to show um, Ali uh, kind of selling her soul and selling out and like becoming all commercial. And so they've created these Gaga derivative-esque songs called like um, Hair, Body, Face, which is about somebody's hair and body and face. Mm. <laughs> One which is just about somebody's arse. Yep. Um, but so they're actually arse. really good as well. Like, that's the weird thing. They're really good. An arse is born. <laughs> very different. Hey, There's a line that goes, "Why'd you come around here with an ass like that?" I've often wondered. Mm. Yeah, Chris, why'd you come around here with an ass like that? Because <laughs> my ass won't quit. <laughs> oh dear. Starts on Sunday, um, goes all the way to Saturday night. I I have the correct answer to this, uh, which is of course upbeat from yeah. Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Upbeat inspirational song about life. Yeah, because it is. It's an upbeat inspirational song about life. You know what you've forgotten, haven't you? Remember me. That's a beautiful song. Yes, yes that, that's which fair. Which made me cry. And did it? Oh, of course it did. It was. The, you are a Cylon. If that didn't make you cry, it did not make me cry. You, you I, are a Cylon. You are a Cylon. Yeah. Affirmative. <laughs> what Cylon sound like? Um, also, uh, Triple Little Light, fantastic from Mary Poppins. That's Returns. a good song. Yeah, good song. I, I enjoyed that song. Do you? How do, so? Question for yeah. you as a Poppins. Um, I beg your pardon? That, that meant to be a Poppins expert, but it didn't work. Poppins sounds like something that James would Google on a Saturday night. I'll say Poppins spurt. How do you think the, the songs for this film stack up against the original? I think pretty well. I think the difference is that we've had 50 years of knowing the other ones and therefore they don't sound as immediately, you know, mm. central to our souls and personalities. But I actually think, you know, 50 years from now, they're, they're probably on a on a similar level in terms of songwriting, in terms of storytelling. And I think also what they've done um, really, really cleverly is use the same sort of sounds to make it feel part of the same universe, part of the same character uh, in Mary Poppins herself, at least, um, which I really, really like. So Triple Little Light, fantastic, I think for me, is the pinnacle of that in, in terms of Triple really... Triple Little Light, fantastic. Yeah, in terms of really With reflecting me. the original, which I liked a lot. Yeah. 
I, yeah, I thought the songs were were were, were good because yeah. I was I was worried. That was the the biggest aspect of that film that that worried me. Because how do you how do you live up to Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious mm-hmm. or Jolly Holiday or Spoonful of Sugar or Let's Go Fly a Kite? I mean, the step in time shit. That's that's all agree on that, isn't it? It's just awful. Step in time. Step in time. No, piss off. Piss off. It's like he's in the room. Chimney sweeps. Scum. We don't oh. need their scum. Oh. Get in. Love chimney sweeps. Good lord. Do they still have chimney sweeps? Yes. Mm. I used one a couple have, of years ago. But they must be like a rarity, right? You must. It must be like a specialism akin to like you're only one of fifty people in the world who can brush a chimney. I don't think so. Brush a chimney. I, what do you do to them? Chimney sweep. Sweep a yeah. chimney. Yeah. I mean, they don't send little children up anymore, which of course they used to in the good old days. But now they have like just longer brushes. Hmm. Well, there you okay. go. There we go. Um, yeah. I'd like to throw in a place called Slaughter Race from uh, Rap Breaks the Internet. I really enjoyed that little musical sequence with okay. uh, Sarah Silverman. Uh, oh, was, also, that the, was that the Alan Menken one that was sort of in the style of a Disney princess? Song? Yeah, well, she has yeah. her princess yeah. moment, yeah. I also liked the very beginning of Ready Player One when Van Halen's jump kind of sinks up to the title sequence. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. <laughs> that played amazingly. So I saw mm. it at a screening, but then at a cinema, a normal cinema at my house in Hackney on a Saturday night, and that moment like played amazingly yeah. to a crowd. Yeah, also the Black Panther soundtrack we should probably yeah. mention. Yeah, um, that's very good. Uh, that was... All the Stars. All the Stars is, like is yeah, All the Stars is the catchiest one, but I've listened to that quite a bit. I will also say there's a lovely moment in Bad Times at the El Royale where Cynthia Erivo sings. Oh, yeah. Oh. What's the name of the song, Terry? It is um, This Old Heart of Mine, which is an Isley Brothers song from the mm. 60s. Yeah, she is an absolute goddess in that. And she did that for real. So Drew Goddard, the director, told me that he didn't want any kind of dubbing afterwards. He didn't want any vocals overlaid in the edit. Everything had to be done live. And she said she spent um, all day doing that, doing those takes, complete takes, over and over and over again until they got it right. And he said, she said, actually, the one they ended up using, there are a couple of like not faults, but there are a couple of moments where she either hesitates or it's not a executed perfectly uh-huh. vocal. Um, and those are the ones that Drew kept in because he really liked the kind of natural way. I mean, but she's a Broadway star. She's an incredible vocalist. Yeah. Yeah. But it's real. That that was just done brilliantly. Interesting. OK. Uh, maybe we'll put together an old playlist and stick it on the old Spotify. Who knows? Uh, right, let's move on to a bigger, um, a major category. I don't know if this is major or not, but funniest moment of the year. What, are we, what, what sort of year do we think this was for comedy? And maybe your funniest moment of the year wasn't even in a comedy. Who knows? Jimbo. I know you're not asking me what the best comedy of the year or the best comedy moment of the year was. I don't know why. I just looked at you. Why would you look at me? You think funny and you automatically just go to me for comedy insight. Well, funny looking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Solid gags. Um, God. South fast. Yeah, didn't it just? Um, Helen. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yeah, someone who year. likes comedies. Monster wasn't this year. Our mother wasn't this year, was it? Monster wasn't mother, this year. Mother or mother was mother funny? Okay. Yeah, mother was hilarious. I had hysterics. Um, Teen Titans Go to the Movies was probably the film that consistently made me laugh more than any other. I mean, there were other very very funny films this year, but that one just made me cry laughing. Spider Verse had some great great comedy moments. It did, as did Ant Man and the Wasp and Black Panther. But any any scene basically with Shuri in it was pretty good uh, stuff in Black Panther. I don't know, maybe. Yes. I mean, and then and uh, Blockers made me laugh. That's interesting. A lot. That really made me laugh. I have to say, I was really, sh- 
I was really shocked. It's not really my speed. Uh-huh. But And John Cena, who knew he would turn out to be such a brilliant comedic actor? I'm a big wrestling fan, and I wish he would take some of the what? acting he displays in movies and put it in wrestling, because he's rubbish when he acts as a wrestler. <laughs> But I would also give a shout-out to Lady Bird, which I think the writing was just phenomenal. The scenes between um, Greta and and Laurie Metcalf, the scene where she's buying the dress for Thanksgiving. just And it was the nuance and the subtlety of those jokes. They weren't big slapstick moments. It was just that beautifully observed comedy of the realities of the um, mother-daughter dynamic. I just There was probably six or seven moments I went to see it. Um, in the cinema again on a Saturday night and it was it played beautifully mm. people were you know really I won't say rolling in the aisles but mm. um, uh, I think that was yeah. actually across the piece one of the funniest films of the year yeah I love that film it's fantastic the, the, the scene where she you know it's already early in the film obviously but the scene where she jumps out the car yes. mid conversation <laughs> because she can't take any more of her mother's bullshit I mean is, the opening scene she throws yeah. herself out of a moving car and then it just cuts to her in church with a cast on yeah that's <laughs> exactly the kind of thing I'd do it's an extraordinary just kind of statement of intent uh, isn't it and if we're, if we're going down that route and we're talking about comedies and we want to stray briefly into TV probably Dairy Girls was the funniest thing oh, I saw this God, year yeah. but yeah. Uh, Along with The Good Place, season Good two. Place. Not so much season three, but yeah. <laughs> season two. I thought season three had, season its, had moments. its moments. Yeah, it's had its moments. The, the Janet episode is pretty great. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, once again, I think Helen's got it pretty much bang on. It is Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Uh, if you haven't seen that film, go and see it. It's amazing. There's a sequence in which the uh, Titans travel back in time oh. that <laughs> has two. Here's the thing about Teen Titans. You hear the thing, it's Teen Titans, it's based on a cartoon that's aimed squarely at kids, and you think, oh, God. But this thing is really aimed at adults. It's got loads of risque jokes, loads of rude jokes. Uh, the last line of the movie, I won't give away here, but it is the best last <laughs> line of any film this year. Yes. It is extraordinary. And it often had me in stitches. <laughs> Another film that had me in stitches repeatedly, despite the fact that it probably isn't that good when you examine it in the cold out of day, is Deadpool 2. I could watch Ryan Rodney Reynolds improv as that character for Until the Cows Come Home. But it is the X Force Meet the Makers scene, as <laughs> earlier explained you by monster. Terry. That's just brilliant. It's Final Destination, but with laughs. <laughs> Two films which I don't think are going to feature in anyone's best uh, of the year list, uh, but which have sequences that maybe really, really laugh are Early Man. There's a sequence where Tom Hiddleston's Lord Nuth gets a massage from a pig. Uh, and he doesn't know he's and and his French accent is good. That made me laugh a lot. It's just a nice, <laughs> nice concept. And there's a really lovely sequence towards the end of the festival, which is a film nobody saw. And the film itself is patchy, but there's a sequence where um, Joe Thomas's character imagines he thinks he's fallen in love with this this girl who's dressed as a Smurf, and so he imagines their future life together. And in all his imaginings, so their their wedding. The birth of their first child, her <laughs> her death, she's a smurf in each of those uh, fantasy sequences. That made me laugh a lot. But I'm going to say Game Night. Game Night, I thought, was the funniest, cleverest big studio comedy in years. I thought it was absolutely terrific. And there's a sequence where Rachel McAdams, who, for my money, is the best <laughs> thing in the movie, not Jesse Plemons, although he is amazing, uh, tries to remove a bullet from her husband's arm played by yes. Jason Bateman. It's as good a piece as comedic writing and performance as I've seen in years. And it doesn't seem to have been touched at any point by the dread improv. You know, improv, when done right, is brilliant. When done wrong, when you just let a bunch of comedians yeah. just add it and try and outdo each other with alts. This thing is precision. 
uh, tooled. It's really, really good. That's Check a fantastic it sequence. It's maybe my scene of the year. Yeah, in, it's so funny. Uh, because it so captures their dynamic as a married couple as well yeah. and just the absurdity of the situation that he's been wounded and she's yeah. shot him and they're they're both trying not to throw up and it's it's absolutely beautiful. All right, let's move on to big a big old category here, which is scenes of the year. Anything that stands out that we haven't already mentioned? Nah. The snap. The snap. The snap. The snap. The snap. Which has now been called the decimation. Yes, I have problems with that, so please let's not talk about that. Yeah, because it can't be a decimation. No. Mathematically. Mathematically, that's wrong. half left. Yeah, a decimation is one in ten. That's right. Um, It's a reduction of ten percent. It was a punishment used in Roman times. by So if there was a rebellious uh, century Mm. of Roman soldiers, they'd kill ten of them. Yeah. I mean, we do that in the Empire office. I was going to say, sounds like a good (laughs) plan. Making notes. Yep. (laughs) Take your plans for 2019. The decimation. Um... In terms of scenes, uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to go back to Free Solo for a minute because the entire final climb of the film, you know, they say there are no atheists in foxholes, but there are no atheists watching that because that is just heart and mouth stuff. I find it really, really um, incredibly tense. Mm -hmm. What else? Oh, God, there's so many. Oh, yeah, I tell you what, um, when he's on the phone in Black Klansman, when he's on the phone to Topher Grace, who's playing David David Duke, Duke, um, and you've got this black policeman pretending to be a white racist uh, I think I think that was a, that was just a brilliantly played scene and really really enjoyed that and and the, the whole sort of police precinct gradually slowly just turning around to look at him like what are you doing oh my god it's wonderfully played mm-hmm. I want to mention Helen has already mentioned it mm-hmm. um, but sh- the scene we just call Shallow from Sarah's Born <laughs> where there are plausibility issues with this scene I will admit which is the fact that she sang a verse of this song once um, and maybe the chorus to Bradley Cooper's Jackson the night before uh-huh. when he was blitzed yeah. and he somehow remembered it yeah. um, wrote a, the music for it briefed yeah. his band and they yeah. came up with a whole song he sent a plane to get her she flies in but this it so beautifully encapsulates that moment where she blossoms in front of your eyes and, and starts to become a star and as Helen mentioned it's specifically the bit where she puts her hands over her eyes when she's singing and it so brilliantly captures the kind of nerves that overwhelming feeling she must have been going through but it's so brilliantly brilliantly done it's one of the best scenes in the film and I also want to mention, um, and I don't know if I'm saying this right, but the Mahjong game in Crazy Rich Asians, yes. which is just phenomenal. And it's between her, the mother-in-law and Constance Wu's character. Mm-hmm. And she's essentially, it's the, um, they're playing out the intellectual um, and emotional games they've been battling with throughout the entire film. This traditional Chinese mm-hmm. game, it's a really beautifully simple way of kind of encapsulating the battle between the two of them a really amazing window into that culture which i think um crazy rich asians did great it, everything wasn't just completely westernized it mm-hmm. really did some interesting thing in terms of putting in genuine um chinese culture in there but it's so remarkable the way it was scripted the way they do the moves i just thought the entire thing was um really beautifully handled mm. Yeah, Crazy Rich Asians is really interesting. It gave us, I think, two of the year's breakout stars. Uh, Aquafina, who was also very good in Ocean's 8, 
but is hilarious in Crazy Rich Asians. I should have mentioned uh, the scene where she turns up to the uh, she turns up to one of the lavish parties <laughs> and <laughs> drops an f bomb in Crazy Rich Asians. It, it absolutely floored me. Uh, she's very very good in that. And it was I have to say Crazy Rich Asians was one of my surprises of the year. Mm. Yeah. In terms of you know we we knew the bucket was based on and obviously. Um, the filmmaker, the director himself, there wasn't a huge body of work to kind of indicate um, what kind of film he would make. We knew it was going to be bombastic, but it was one of the best rom-coms in years, genuinely. Really reminded me of why I loved rom-coms growing up. It was it was classically done, um, but was really intelligent. The writing was on point. And as you say, the performances, yeah. Aquafina was just... And, and we should have probably mentioned that in the funniest moments because there yeah, were sure. some, some moments that she had which were just incredible. She yeah. is... It, Remarkable, but it was just such a well balanced film and and really had proper heart to it. wasn't trying to be too cool or too edgy, even with Aquavina, but was just really kind of staying true to those classic rom com kind of traditions, um, which are great scripting, really full blooded performances, and just wholeheartedly going in for the romance bit of the rom com, which I yeah. think sometimes people are a bit too cool to go near. Going back to the idea of introducing big stars, uh, Henry Golding. Yeah. Had, a, yeah. had a hell of a year and just what kind charisma. of yeah just kind of arrived fully formed this this sort of living god type of thing <laughs> I don't know who it was who suggested that he should be in the next Bond but now it's all I can think about and if he's not the next Bond I'm going to be very very angry you're going to riot aren't you I will riot um, yeah speaking of also breakthrough stars uh, Brian Tyree Henry we should mention obviously he's yes. he's been around for a while he was obviously he's been building up his reputation in Atlanta but in the series and as well as the time <laughs> yes. I'm sure but he it's had a heck of an end to the year he's, uh, he's he's been amazing so just in terms of scenes before we move on um, a film we haven't mentioned yet uh, is Black 47 mm-hmm. and there's a there's an absolutely great scene in that where Feeney finally meets uh, Hannah again Hugo Weaving's character and th- there's a moment where they have a decision to make and they sort of just, they don't actually really say anything. They just decide and go with it. That I thought was fantastic. That's, I really that like was that a, film. Yeah, really, really mm. great film. So, yeah, really enjoyed that as well. Uh, in terms of moments, uh, very much for me, there's a moment in A Quiet Place where John Krasinski's character tells his daughter that he loves her. Uh, and that just destroyed oh, yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, not to go into too much detail about that scene, but that's an incredible scene. Mm. I love that film. So do and I. we haven't talked about that film no. that much, uh, weirdly. But uh, yeah, I thought it was absolutely terrific. And the opening, the balls to open a film like that. <laughs> yeah. By, Extraordinary, uh, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and it would have been so much more powerful if they hadn't ruined it in the trailer. But that's neither here nor there. Oh, luckily I hadn't seen the trailer. So yeah. yeah. Uh, but okay. yeah, that, that's, a, that's a hell of an opening. Yeah. Yeah. Really My is. film of the year, Quiet Place. Oh, well, we're getting on to that. Don't, yeah, don't very... spoil it, Jimbo. <laughs> Sorry. Hell's bells. Back, Jim. um, I was going to mention uh, Skate Kitchen, um, just the, the girls all sitting around in, uh, I can't remember whose bedroom, but it, a bedroom, sort of bonding, I thought was, was really, really good. Because, again, it's the sort of just casual, realistic conversation between women that cinema historically has not done very well. At the other end of the teenage realism scale, um, Love, Simon... The the scene mm. on the on the Ferris wheel oh, Ferris yes. wheel at the end is is absolutely lovely completely fantastical you know it may as well have fairies and superheroes in it because it's <laughs> it's so OTT but it's also just lovely and and I really really liked it and and yeah the post the three way t- phone conversation where they make the decision whether or not to publish the Pentagon Papers that I absolutely adored I just thought I really really obviously I love Spielberg that kind of goes without saying around these parts but I really really adored the 
sort of grittiness of that, the fact that it's an incredibly high stakes decision made in the most mundane fashion possible on a conference call. And and it's the little gesture that Meryl Streep makes. She puts down the phone and she just sort of puts out her hands like, right, that's that. And that, I just sold the whole thing. I loved it. So you're the one who liked the post. Yeah. I'm the one who likes the post. I, I would have recorded that scene, but I was almost certainly asleep during that particular part of the Good film. Good Lord. So. No, but I, I, think it's, I think it's an underrated film. I think it's just one of those classic old-fashioned dramas. And um, and yeah, obviously delivered by two of the best actors around, which which makes all the difference. I enjoyed the post. I was, I was only kidding, only messing. Uh, I hear the cinema put it in their top ten of the year. It was so. in my top ten of the year, but it was knocked out at the last minute. Oh, okay. I was just going to say, because uh, like you, Jimbo, here at the cinema have clearly only seen ten films this year, so well done them. <laughs> a phone call is one of my favourite scenes of the year as well, which is the heart-rending phone call in Journeyman, uh, where Paddy oh. Constantine's character... Uh, I mean, honestly, how Paddy Constantine and Jodie Whittaker did not get nominated for BAFTAs is beyond me, and it's a dereliction of duty <laughs> on BAFTAs' part. That is an extraordinary uh, scene uh, where Paddy Constantine's brain-damaged boxer is desperately trying to reconnect with his wife who he has driven away and it is just devastating stuff I have one more and it is it kind of ties into my one of my if not my main performance of the year which is Daniel Kaluuya in Widows and there's the bit where he faces off against two members of his crew who have been caught rapping in a dumpster and it was one of the most chilling scenes he is mm. absolutely terrifying yeah, yeah. Yeah. in He's, that film yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's not why he kills them. N- no. To be clear. That isn't why he kills them. But it's just the way he goes about it. And you can see it coming, but it is so blood chilling. It really is. Uh, yeah. love, him, love him in that. Yeah. It was, it, that was, it was an interesting thing, Widows, wasn't it? Because it was taking a kind of a pulpy, classic yeah. kind of thriller story, but then giving it that Steve McQueen kind of sheen and his, you know, giving it, he, he gave it so much more depth. Obviously, he, he, put together just an astonishing cast that, that elevated the whole thing. But it is a, you know, it is a classic thriller with those kind of big, mm. broad kind of moments as well. It's a, it's a really fascinating film. It's one that I have kind of kept thinking about. It's been in my head since I saw it and, uh, and it's kind of grown on me even since I saw it. I wasn't that wild about it, but it does contain one of my favourite shots of the year which is the car shot where the camera stays static outside the car yeah. as they drive and you just hear the conversation going on within the car. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a lovely, lovely bit of camera. I mean, yeah, that that's, brings us neatly onto my next category, which is favourite <laughs> shots of the year and that is my favourite shot of the year. It's extraordinary because it exposes the hypocrisy of Colin Farrell's character which is, you know, he's going from this place of extreme poverty and I, I was watching that to this, you know, this place of extreme wealth, this place of extreme wealth mm. where he lives and they're literally like two minutes apart and I was watching that shot going, what's he doing? What's he, has he forgotten that he's left the camera <laughs> on the car? And it's only as he pulls up to his house that uh, Steve McQueen's point uh, becomes clear. I think that's tremendous. Mm. Well done. Well done everybody yeah. except for um, the people who have left Chicago in such... <laughs> penury and poverty. Uh, what else? Jimbo, you got any favourite shots this year? Yes, but uh, neither of them are from films. Yeah. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, Terry, <laughs> <laughs> what are your favourite shots this year? Do you understand the point of this podcast? I'm just saying, I'm just saying, in the prison visit in Daredevil Season 3, that one take shot, which is the prison fight, is one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen on television. Uh, and that's is uh, the is the other one the Haunting of Hill House? It is indeed, yeah. yes. It is that, indeed. That's, I mean, that's correct. Yes, yeah. fair enough. That is pretty good. There you go. Can I have those? In fact, Thank we you. should probably add a TV category really quick. Right. Here, here, here the or, wanna, or a whole podcast. I don't want to steal like. away any listeners slash listener from the Pilot TV podcast. <sighs> uh, your shots. What are your favourite shots? 
Um, I, I want Terry to go first because I can see she's mm. got one of the ones I was about to mention. So. Ooh, Terry's oh, re- see, Terry's prepared. Terry has written shit down. Yeah. So, the family embracing on the beach in Roma. Yeah. So, in the last issue of Empire... Um, uh, we got Alfonso to run through essentially some of the most iconic shots from the film. It is, in many respects, it's like a painting. This moment, whenever you see a still of this anywhere, it looks like a piece of art. I mean, this goes for the entire film, but that shot in particular, when she's rescued them from the waves and they all come together and everybody's just perfectly placed. Uh, Helen, I've come up with a, a few because unfortunately I had a couple of minutes to think about this. Um, so the final shot of Revenge, just the close up on the face, uh, I think is is stunning, and I, I really like that film uh-huh. um a star is born i didn't love it as much as some in this room not looking at terry but i am um but at the same time the moment where she puts her hands over her face while she's while she's performing on the big stage for the first time i think it's just a beautiful little character beat it's a lovely little bit of performance but it's also kind of really affecting i think it's a great shot um first man that opening um sort of just suborbital flight that he's on, the, the attempt to sort of break out of the atmosphere um, and the shaking and the noise. Um, it's not the most beautiful shot of the year, but I think it's one of the most effective in communicating things that cinema's not always good at, which is just physical sensation and get, getting you the impression of the the physical difficulties of trying to do what those men did in the Apollo missions. I think it's phenomenal. The Rider, I think, was a gorgeously shot film and, and I think had some just incredibly beautiful shots of, of the landscape and everything else. But there's there's one moment where he's just riding a horse uh, along the, the landscape of, I think yes. it was North Dakota. I think the f- entire film was shot pretty much at Magic Hour. I yeah, read, basically. I somewhere. Yeah, it's, because it's, he had it's another job. Yeah. <laughs> Which... Astounded me. It's it's an incredible performance from non-professional actors and really, really worth your time if you haven't seen it already. I will confess, I have not seen that film. I really, really, really want to. You will, yeah, I think you'll like it. Um, Free Solo, I think, is is stunning. It's a documentary on the climber Alex Honnold and um, it was shot by also expert climbers. The difference being they used ropes and he didn't. But, I mean, some of those shots, you're just like, I don't understand how human beings can get this and I don't understand why you're not dead already because they're literally just hanging over the edge of El Capitan, which is... A three thousand foot cliff, straight up and down, in Yosemite National Park, and it's it's amazing. But of course, my and this will surprise precisely none of you. My my shot of the year is obviously Cap emerging from the shadows. <laughs> oh, well. oh, and I do want to mention All Gold Canyon, which is um, in Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and it's the Tom Waits mm. story. And there's, I mean, there's actually a few shots in there, which is the kind of those incredible, I mean, almost kind of unreal vistas and that along with the score, it's just a remarkable, remarkable... There's probably three or four shots in there specifically, which yeah. are just incredible. Um, there's a shot in Into the Spider-Verse just after he oh. gets his suit where he's, you know, there's like this really bass-heavy song playing. He's swinging through the streets and there's a shot where he's falling and it's inverted. So he's falling upwards through the screen. And at that moment, I was like, that was the transcendental moment in that film for me where I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. That moment properly just like, oh, gave me shivers. Yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. That's a gorgeous film if you haven't seen that yet. I mean, just the art-wise, apart from anything else, it's stunning. But the story is equally good. It's amazing. Yep. I, I That is a shot I was thinking of. That is fantastic. I love that shot. One of the things about doing this review of your podcast is that uh, we are beholden to the uh, UK release dates, which means that films that people mm. may think have long gone are in our top 10s or top 20s or thereabouts. So films like The Shape of Water and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri and Phantom Thread 
films like that. There's a moment in Phantom Thread where they're racing through the countryside in, a, in his car and they're yeah. going so fast and just a feeling of acceleration and just a feeling of being on the verge of losing control, which is something that Reynolds Woodcock, you don't necessarily imagine that he's on the verge of losing control very often. I love that shot. That's 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 absolutely terrific. Loads of shots in the shape of water. The sort of reverie she has, the sort of fantasy that 1930s MGM mm-hmm. musical black and white fantasy that she has where she's dancing with Doug Jones as a fierce creature. James knows what I'm talking about. It's his favourite film of the year. Um, and he loves that. He loves that film. Fucking fish. And uh, yeah, there's there's tons and tons of good stuff. We haven't even mentioned Mission Impossible Fallout, which oh, has shots man. that mm. I still don't know how yeah. they got without actually killing Tom Cruise. Loading arms. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's probably... Is that one of the iconic images? That is, yeah. Yes. It is. It's yeah. Loading the, his arms. It's one of the most memed, certainly, <laughs> isn't it, of the year? Uh, and then I'm just going to give another shout out very quickly to Hearts Beat Loud. Uh, I forgot to mention it when we were talking about our soundtracks and, and songs of the year. That's an incredibly, just a lovely movie. Just a really small film with mm. great performances from uh, Nick Offerman and Kiersey Clemens. And the soundtrack for that, for which they perform a lot of the songs themselves, uh, is really, really great. So download that as well. I'm going to finish off with three questions and then we're going to round up with our films of the year. Okay. Our top tens, our personal top tens of the year. See how those tally. All right, here we go. What film did you love this year that everyone else hated? <laughs> I mean, in my case, almost certainly Molly's Game, or should I say the four-star masterpiece that is Molly's Good Game. Good Lord, I didn't hate it. I gave it a three-star review, which is exactly what it deserved, you monster. <laughs> Ruined it. Ruined it. Oh. Um, I seem to like Mortal Engines more than oh, really anybody. God. Hateful film. Well, there you go. <laughs> I think I Isn't like... it due to lose a hundred million dollars at the box office? Yes, yes but it's it, it's not That's cool no to like of quality. S- yeah, celebrate that, James. Jeez. I mean, it deserves nothing more. Wow. God, Terry. Uh, I actually had more time for Red Sparrow than uh, pretty much anyone else I know. Yep. Wow, and it's hugely problematic mm. Um, mm. in so many respects. But as a kind of hardcore thriller um i had a jolly good time at the cinema confusingly so <laughs> confusingly so i'll be honest okay that's a good shout i'm gonna add one to this uh, this quadruple bill uh and that is of course den of thieves <laughs> damn straight yep. my boy my boy jerry b had a good year this year he had a good year this year uh, Hunter Killer was fine. It was okay. I enjoyed it. Submarine drama absolutely hits the sweet spot. But Den of Thieves really surprised me. I was expecting it to be schlock. Uh, instead, I found a pretty damn good remake of Heat. That turns 20 minutes before the end of the movie into a uh, less good remake of another classic film that I won't give away lest it spoil the ending. But uh, yeah, it's really good. And uh, if they do make the rumoured slash threatened sequel with uh, Jerry Butler once again as Big Nick O'Brien, then I am there. I am there for it all day long and twice on Wednesdays. Den of Thieves, check it out. Right, what movie did you hate slash dislike slash just not be that bothered about that everyone loved? Terry. You know this because we have come to verbal blows over this. Game night. Oh, yes. Hated it. Hated it. Didn't think it was funny. Thought it was really hammy. Really obvious. Hated Hammy and obvious. Hated, Which film did you see? Hated every second of it. And when did it you was, like blockers? When it, I know. I can't offer you any rationale other than I came out of the um, pictures 
having hated every second of it, being like, that was rubbish, wasn't it? As the entire world looked back at me and said, no, it was great. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, maybe you need to revisit it again. But for me, it is beautifully tightly scripted, really well performed, interesting cast, and it's directed really, really well by the, the, the two directors, uh, John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein, who... Am I boring you, James? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean, the number of times I rolled my eyes in this film, um, yeah. I'm surprised they're not lodged up in my skull still. But <laughs> but they emulated David Fincher's style because it's Game Nights so was based on kind of... A, it's yeah, a, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. influenced yeah, by the yeah, game. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just trying to talk about the craft that they still brought to the like film. Still not going to like it. Still not going to like it. It's very funny. I mean, it's got good is characters. It, is it... Thrilling at times. Is it? It is. And it's got Rachel McAdams being an absolute boss. So there you go. Well done, Game Night. Uh, anyone else? Anyone else want to chip in before I say Suspiria? <laughs> <laughs> Did everyone love that? I saw a lot of people dislike yeah, it. Was, uh, certain, it was divisive. A certain type of film critic enjoyed Suspiria. I think, I th- I think collectively Empire disliked it much more than probably any other mm. group of people or publication. I think that's fair to say. I think we all... Yeah felt quite strongly about this one. I thought it was a big pile of poo. And that's what I mean by a bit strongly. Big old pile of poo. That's what that was. Well, you all know what <laughs> film I hated this year. It was Fishfucker. Absolute <laughs> overrated load of tosh. Fair enough. Just saying. Unlike James, I'm a lover, not a hater. Um, yeah. So there are definitely films that disappointed me to one level or another, um, but not very many that made me furious this year, which is good. I mean, that's unusual. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Films that disappointed me: Hotel Artemis. I was, I was, mm. I had really, really high hopes, and maybe too high. Maybe they were higher than the film could sort of meet. But that one kind of let me down. Darkest Hour. I find great performances, but a bit dreary overall. Oh, yeah. um, so and Red Sparrow, I did not like. I'm sorry, Terry. <gasps> what about Bo Rap as well? We I feel like we should mention Bo Rap um, just yeah. to say why. Don't do it. I think we felt... And actually, this did receive kind of quite... There was some critics who liked it, and actually the box office, it did well, um, which doesn't necessarily surprise me, but I was very disappointed because you have Rami Malek, who is incredible in pretty much everything, and to be fair, he had an impossible job because everything else around it was pretty terrible, I have to say. Mm. And the production values, like everything, and the fact that, for me, it's a sanitised kind of straight, cis version of Freddie Mercury's life. You don't need to add drama to Freddie's story. He lived a remarkable life, a groundbreaking life in many ways. And, you know, his his kind of real battles with HIV and the kind of toxic environment in which he was um, diagnosed in. And there's so many really properly um, significant things that you could talk about with Freddie and his part in LGBTQ culture and kind of to, to whitewash that, I felt, was pretty unforgivable. Songs were good, though. <laughs> songs though right yeah what about those songs I mean it's no no shallow but then again I mean come on what is what is yeah I, I'm kind of I'm a little bit surprised that Bohemian Rhapsody got as much of a pass as it did I'm if, really if I'm honest I'm really not I, I thought it was always going to play really brilliantly with an audience and with um, a certain audience right like let's be honest like if yeah. you are a um, a queen fan of a certain age yeah. a certain era um, then you just love the songs. You're not so interested in in that kind of those um, darker places of storytelling. You just want to go and sit amongst other Queen fans and really enjoy yeah. those songs. That's the thing. It was an incredibly cosy take on his mm. life. Like I don't, 
I, I don't think it outright lied about him, although it left a huge amount out. Um, but it's uh, but it's just the coziest possible, mm. ex, you know, version of that story that really could be imagined, um, which which kind of yeah was was a shame. What film? Have you not seen this year that you regret, that you suspect would be on your top ten list if you had managed to see it? I should probably not answer this just because we don't have three hours to spare. <laughs> all the films, all the films I didn't see and should have seen. You saw Infinity War, right? I did see that one, and really I thought my work was done after that. So. And you saw Aquaman. I have seen Aquaman. Well, that was all that's, the films. All yeah, that is, <laughs> I mean, that is all the films combined, isn't yeah. it? So, yeah, I'm done. I think I speak for us all when I say Holmes and Watson, which has not yet screened for critics as we record this. And I'm and, sure we will be, not. And will not. And I'm sure it would be high in all our top tens. It will be out, of course, by the time you're listening to this. This is out on the 28th of December. So our Holmes and Watson spoiler special should be up around the same time. <laughs> Everyone's free on the 27th. Just no, come. I could record on the 25th, maybe. Yeah. 25th. It's not on to Box Day. Oh, curses. Yeah. Holmes and Watson. Terry, is there anything you've, you've missed that you think? The Rider, actually. Mm. Um, yeah. And it was just one of those things that wasn't kind of top of my list and then I've never got round to seeing it. I'm going to fix that over Christmas and New Year because I do think it would have maybe edged my 10 from what I hear from other people. I think that's correct. I think you'll love it. Uh, I'm going to fess up. I've been a little bit derelict when it comes to Netflix movies this year, so I haven't seen even though he directed two of my favourite films the last 10 years, Gareth Evans' Apostle yet. It's two and a half hours long. It's a horror film of sorts. So getting my wife to watch it has been really, really tricky. So I will try and find time over the Christmas holidays to watch that because I have a feeling I could be right in my sweet spot. And I didn't see Hold the Dark, the new Jeremy Saulnier movie e- either. And I think about Netflix movies, they come out, you thick and fast. And sometimes they just, mm. they fade. And they're they? never in your, you know, recommended list. Yeah, Roma wasn't last week for yeah. me. It took me ages. It took two, three, two or three days to, up, to, to refresh. Up. Yeah. yeah, it's very upsetting. All right, so that's it. Uh, now it is time to go through our top ten, uh, our individual top tens. Jimbo, have you prepared one? I have. All right, okay. Give it to us from ten down to one. Now, disappointingly, as I said, I have retconned this to insert some additions, and that means that we've had two fallouts. It means Journey's End has dropped off my list, but more importantly, the four-star masterpiece that is Molly's Game <laughs> you know is that's... no longer in my top ten. Yeah, because it's not very good, but go ahead. Whoa! I thought it was good, Helen. I thought you recommended it. Three stars. Yeah, three-star. It wasn't very good, I said. Okay. Anyway, the four-star masterpiece is Molly Game at number 11. At number ten, we have Game Night, as Terry will agree, the funniest film of the year. Yep. At number nine, we have Black Panther. At number eight, Mission Impossible Fallout. At number seven, Bird Box, which I absolutely loved and appeared to be on some kind of a limb on this, but that's fine. The rest of us haven't watched it yet, though. That's possibly true. Uh, At number six, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. At number five, Coco. Mm -hmm. At number four, Lady Bird. At number three... Appropriately, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Uh, at number two, Avengers: Infinity War, and at number I one, with no noise at all or fanfare, A Quiet Place. Interesting. Mm. Yes. Interesting list. And those are the ten films I saw this year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Terry, what's your list? So I recommend this as well because we did our official Empire ones um, about a month ago. So Crazy Rich Asians was at number 10. That's now been knocked out for Old Man and the Gun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just a beautiful piece of filmmaking. Elegaic. Um, Beast at nine. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout at eight. Quiet Place at seven. Ah. Lady Bird at six. 
Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri at number five. <laughs> number four is Black Panther. Um, remarkable, remarkable film. So significant. Number three is A Star Is Born, which I think is surprising to everyone that it's so low. Um, number two, Avengers: Infinity War, which for me was one of the you know cinematic moments of the year. Now, number one is something we haven't actually talked a great deal about. I had a list of categories around sadness and around death, <laughs> and this did. film was saved for those categories. It is Cold War, which is. A phenomenal doomed tale of impossible love in impossible times. The film that broke me the most, that filled my heart the most. Um, Polish black and white films necessarily aren't normally my thing. Um, (laughs) uh, But this is a remarkable piece of storytelling and filmmaking and was my number one by quite a long way. Blimey. Well, well, well. The old Terry White seal of approval there for Pavel Pavlikovsky's Cold War. Hell's bells. Yeah, I was trying to. Um, I've been trying to rejig it on the go, and it's not working. So, very close to the top ten, but not actually on it. Were uh, Ladybird, Coco, and The Post. Mm-hmm. But then in at number ten, you were never really here, um, which I thought was absolutely astonishing. Lynn mm-hmm. Ramsey film, uh, which we haven't talked about a lot, which is mm-hmm. a shame. Number nine, Roma. Number eight, Leave No Trace, which I also thought was just phenomenal performances. Number seven, Hereditary. Mm-hmm. Number six. Widows, and we now get into, and I swear this is atypically blockbuster heavy for me, okay, I promise. Uh, number five, Black Panther. Number four, Teen Titans Go to the Movies. Yes, I loved it that much. Number three, Mission Impossible four, Fallout. Two, Into the Spider Verse. And number one, Avengers Infinity War. Yeah. Very interesting indeed. A good old year for Avengers Infinity War, which we tried not to talk about too much in this podcast <laughs> because we've obviously done a, our own two and a half hour spoiler special, which people can check out if they want. But uh, it is an astonishing achievement and it's mm. unlike anything that's ever been attempted before mm. uh, in cinematic terms. And I don't know how they made it work. Neither do I. I don't know how it wasn't mm. just incoherent and it wasn't just like... Kevin Feige throwing poo at a wall for two and a half hours, I, which I would also watch. Yeah. And yeah. Five obviously, yeah, obviously. In fairness, but uh, how how did they make that a, into a coherent movie yeah. that worked as well as it did? That worked mm. as uh, as well emotionally yeah. as it did, and also brought the, uh, the the visuals. Well, this is the thing. Somebody said that the, the, the film is basically people you like turning up for two hours. Yeah. You know, yeah. just and and that isn't untrue, but at the same time. You, you're so immersed in it now that you know it's it's like it's more like a soap opera than a traditional film series. You are so invested in these characters and in their relationships with each other. Um, you're so invested in the ones that haven't met before getting along that you actually care about them turning up. And and so the emotional stakes were just ginormous in it. Uh, um, yeah, it's um, it's phenomenal. Love it. There has been a rush this week. Uh, the reviews for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse are amazing, and it is an incredible film. Mm. And but there's been a rush for people just to go because they always want to anoint a new thing, don't yeah. they? Yeah. And they always forget the old thing, even though the old thing was like eight months ago. <laughs> and they and there's been a lot of people going, "This is the greatest superhero film of the year," or "It's the best superhero film I've seen in ten years." And it's a brilliant, brilliant film. And I think it's a it's a landmark film in terms mm. of animation. But guys, the, the Infinity War happened like eight months ago and it was absolutely amazing. I mean, and yeah, you know. Apples and oranges, in a, in a way, I guess. Yeah. We're we're going to have to watch that a bunch more times. Oh no, what a shame! It is to interesting, though, it isn't it? That this is an Empire Review of the Year podcast, and there has in a year that a Star Wars film came out, and yet there has been 
almost no mention of said Star Wars film because nobody cares. That, Which, that's true, actually. And, and the thing is, Solo, a Star Wars story, was not a bad film. No. It was aggressively average. It was fine. It was the most okay film that's ever been made. It was just fine. There is nothing to say about it's, it. It was a Ron Howard film. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is the guy who made Apollo 13. He, he has a pass. But, Apollo uh, 11 is so much better. <laughs> uh, I guess. Um, I mean, technically, in terms of obje- objectives oh achieved. But anyway, um, <laughs> Apollo 11 landed on the moon, James. First Stop man. Stop shuttle-splaining to us. <laughs> they weren't shuttles. Oh, my God. <laughs> if anything, she's first man-splaining to us. <laughs> it's only rocket science, Helen. Yes, it is. Um, so uh, the thing about Solo is nobody needed it. Yeah. Nobody asked for it. Nobody really wanted <laughs> Dread to Dread it. Run from it. <laughs> yeah, this is <laughs> it. It arrives you know? just the same. I feel like, I mean, the thing about prequels is there's in there might be interest theoretically in unexplored corners of a universe and that's a thing that might be of interest to Mm. people but at the same time usually if a character has mystery in their background the character is meant to have mystery in their background and explaining every single thing unless you're doing it as a gag which is how you know this whole trend started with indiana jones and um the last crusade that that was funny because it was like original and we hadn't seen it a million times and it was just a it, it basically a gag yeah. in the film. We don't need entire franchises based on that kind of joke. I also do think Infinity War and to a slightly lesser degree Black Panther just changed the landscape in terms of expectation. Mm. I think they were so remarkable mm. and so if Infinity War especially moved the needle so much in terms of what you could exp- pay to experience at the cinema that I think expectations grew and the film just couldn't match them. Even in a normal year I don't think it would have matched them but in this year coming what six weeks after Avengers something like that it was I don't see how they could have met those expectations and and that excellence that Infinity War laid down. That is a real genuine problem for filmmakers from for 2019 and 2020. Mm -hmm. I think we've seen some unbelievable things this year. I think we've seen some jaw-dropping storytelling, stunt work, um, animation, obviously. I think we've seen the the bar raised so high. I mean, even something like Aquaman, which we haven't talked about too much because it's it's a very recent film as you're listening to this. But that film throws so much Mm -hmm. at the screen, like about 10 blockbusters worth of, of action, just because that's the only way to kind of give us that dazzle right now or well it's not the only way it's one of a number of ways to give us that dazzle you either throw everything including the kitchen sink or you do something genuinely drop dropping we haven't seen before but you've got to really push the boat out and i think that's what this year has shown for the big studio tent poles eh? um because if you're gonna spend 150 million dollars making a film and that's pretty much a you know, low-end uh, blockbuster these days. You've got to have something brilliant to do with that money. It's not just enough to throw money at the screen. Now you've got to really think about it first. And I think that has been the lesson that studios have really shown that they've taken on board this year. And I hope that that's something that they're going to really, really build on going forward. Because if they do, we're in a golden age of blockbuster cinema. I also think people have... have kind of fallen back in love with the basics of storytelling again. Mm. People want to be told genuinely innovative, exciting, thrilling, heartwarming stories. And that's why something like Cold War, for me, can be up there alongside Avengers Infinity War because they get the fundamentals of what humans want from storytelling really right. And something like Solo, for me, the storytelling chops just weren't there. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that the emotional beats have to be there. The emotional weight of the story has to be there um, as well. And you have to... 
engage with the people that you're watching as well as the you know the CG and the dazzle. Um, and I think that's what this year's best movies have really all done. Um, a couple of quick words about uh, documentaries for a minute, if I can. Mm-hmm. There's been some great documentaries this year and also kind of some really, really heartwarming ones. Uh, Won't You Be My Neighbour, which is about a figure we've basically never heard of in this country, Mr. Rogers. Um, that's a really, really good portrait of a really, really good person. And I think we could all do with some of those now. Science Fair is an incredibly inspiring documentary. It's about um, teenagers basically changing the world. They've got these science projects in school and they do things that I don't understand them even when they explain them Uh, but it's amazing Um, The Price of Everything I think is a fascinating dissection of the art world and that's really worth checking out if you haven't seen that and then Free Solo I've banged on about enough so I won't mention it again but honestly in terms of the things that people that human beings can do in the world I think there are stories to be told there that we don't tell enough and it's really worth seeking some of those out and trying some documentaries even if you don't usually I thought it would be quite interesting to go through the worldwide top 10 box office this year uh, so at 10, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. <laughs> a film that has not otherwise come up. Uh-huh. Huh. It's, it's strange that, huh? Yeah. Uh, number nine, Ant-Man and the Wasp. That actually surprised me. I didn't think it had done that well. Uh, number eight, Bohemian Rhapsody, mm, which did very well. Yeah. Number seven, Deadpool 2, which did pretty much exactly what the first movie did. Number six, Mission Impossible Fallout, which I believe is Tom Cruise's biggest movie. Well done. Well done him. Just showing that you know you can still yeah. you can still do it. He even may if he well smashes go his ankle into a building <laughs> along the way. Number five, Venom. Venom, Venom, Venom. <laughs> I mean that's that's a thing that happens. <clears throat> we talk about here about how blockbusters have have progressed, mm. and then Venom comes in at number five and just ruins everything. Well, at the same time, there is something to be said for the film that you don't need a degree in Marvel studies to have seen. So I guess no, you know, that's, yeah, or uh, degree in anything. To have seen Venom, in fairness. Number four, Incredibles 2. Only four films hit the $1 billion barrier this year. Incredibles 2 was one of them with $1.2 billion. Then Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom with $1.3 billion. And that's another movie that hasn't come up in this review of the year mm. podcast. I mean, I think both of those were totally fine sequels that didn't really deliver as much of an emotional whammy as I, for one, wanted from mm-hmm. them. And yeah, Jurassic World, I, I thought was a bit fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom for me had one of my favourite shots of the year which is the Toby Jones wig blowing in the wind so so to speak I won't say anything else about that uh, number two Black Panther I mean uh, incredible no one had that peg to make 1.346 billion dollars before mm. it opened uh, it is the highest grossing film of the year in the States it outgrossed Avengers Infinity War in the States uh, and uh, it's done incredibly incredibly well and it was a a seismic cultural event yeah I think so. Yeah. Extraordinary stuff I, to say. I told this story on Twitter at the time and people, of course, went, no, it didn't happen. But it did. Um, when we had that snowfall in March that you mentioned earlier, um, I, I was walking through the park to get coffee in the morning and there were all these little school kids running around shouting Wakanda forever and throwing <laughs> snowballs at each other. And it's honestly one of the most heartwarming things I saw all year. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a huge cultural moment. And, uh you know, I, I think it's kind of, it's a wonderful film yeah. as well, but it's, it's also, really yeah. it's absolutely smashed any of these lazy, racist and often sexist assumptions about who can open a film uh, and make big money. And I think it, it absolutely destroys any attempt to stick to those old fashioned notions and myths about filmmaking and more power to it. Absolutely. But also how wonderful it is that we started the year with a movie that had uh, an African hero at its core and now with Spider-Man the Spider-Verse is another movie where we have an Afro-Latino at the core of that story as well 
And it's just wonderful to see that sort of representation in, mm. in storytelling. Yeah. People like me, we've had our day. <laughs> I didn't want to say, Chris, but the knackers are actually waiting outside lawn, in their Ellen. van. Get off my lawn! Uh, number one, only the fourth movie of all time to break the $2 billion barrier at the box office. Uh, it is Avengers Infinity War out by a country mile ahead of its competitors with $2 billion. Um, so that's pretty pretty good. Well done, everybody. Correct, yes. My top 10 is Den of Thieves. At number 9, Den of Thieves. Number 8 is Den of Thieves. Number No, I'm kidding. Number 10, we have You Were Never Really Here. Yes. Hearts Beat Loud. Yep. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And Den of Thieves. <laughs> at number 9, we have American Animals which is another film we haven't really mentioned, no. but it's fantastic. Number eight, three billboards, seven, The Shape of Water, six, Mission Impossible Fallout, five, Teen Titans, Go to the Movies. Actually, you know what? Spider-Man would probably go above that. Uh, four, Game Night, three, Lady Bird, two, A Quiet Place, and number one, Avengers Infinity War. <laughs> In a pear tree. <laughs> and that's it. All right. <sighs> Phew. I hope this is recorded. Let's hope. I <laughs> really, really hope this is recorded. That is it for our review of the year. Special, my word, it's been a long one. Is it 2019 yet? Nearly. Oh, I can't wait for the big tent poles in 2019. Just, <laughs> I just, oh, just, what tent poles will I wake up to? What? What? You know, massive tent poles. Yeah, there are some films, by the way, obviously, that we haven't discussed because they technically come out in this country next year. Mm-hmm. So uh, things like Stan and Ollie, things like If Beale Street Could Talk, which mm-hmm. is extraordinary. Um, there, there's a lot of great, great stuff coming your the way. Favorite. In, in The favourite, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of great stuff coming your way in January and February um, for award season, so do keep an eye out for those. And any Americans listening, and this is all old hat to you, well, tough. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, and that is it from us. Uh, just very, very quickly, go around the, uh, the room. Uh, can you rate this year out of Five or ten is entirely up to you. James. Cinematically or just in general? Both. Uh, in general, zero. Cinematically, <laughs> <laughs> cinematically, I'd give it a healthy eight and a half. An eight and a half out of five. Well done, James. <laughs> Terry? Four mm. out of five. This is personally or cinematically? Uh, an average of the two. Ooh. <laughs> so it could be three cinematically, but five personally, and you're yeah. rounding it up. Or the other way around. Exactly. Helen? Um, I think four cinematically, politically. I mean, we don't give zero, James, so I'm going to go one star for politically. Oh, you went politically? Mm. That, that's well, what I meant, okay. yeah. Interesting, interesting. Uh, I thought this is a pretty damn good year. I'm going to give this four stars. And uh, as for the other question, uh, well, that's my business. I'd like to thank you to keep out of my personal affairs. Oh, my God. Uh, so until aggressive. we meet again, until 2019, the regular podcast is back on the 4th of January. Uh, we have other stuff coming up as well. We're going to be live, obviously, at King's Place for our 350th episode on February 6th. Tickets might still be available at kingsplace.co.uk if you go along there and check them out. We'd love to see you if there are. Right, that's it. Uh, it is goodbye from James Dyer. Merry New Year. It is goodbye from Terry White. Goodbye. It is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Endgame, woo! <laughs> it's true. It is true. Basically, it's just a countdown clock until that movie comes out, and yeah. then I just—I think I—I I I think I shut down at that point. I think that my oh, my purpose is—it will overload your circuits. Yeah, I have finally discovered my special purpose. <laughs> is that what they're calling it now? That's what they're calling it now. And my special purpose is to just uh, await the arrival of Kevin Feige's massive temple. Thanks so much for listening. See you next year. Happy New Year, everybody. Bye-bye.